Well, hello again. This is Buck Manning speaking. Welcome to another episode of Zero Hour. This, of course, is a week's worth of episodes, all five episodes uh, from the week, starring Richard Crenna as our lead. Richard Crenna, of course, was from the comedy series uh, in 19... What, late 1940s, early 1950s, from radio that eventually went into television. And he played Walter on the series Armix R. Miss Brooks with um, Eve Arden as the lead. And did a wonderful job. He had this really unique voice that he would use. And But in this series, he's going to, of course, use his own voice. And he made a, a nice transition from radio to television, from comedy to serious roles, like this one. And so it's fun to hear him in, in, in this role. And, of course, later he would become famous for being in the Rambo movies as the, um, what, the colonel in the Rambo movies who's in charge of Rambo. Uh, his Some of his latest, last performances were on television. I can't remember the name of the show, but it starred Time Daily. And uh, he did a wonderful job, but he died during the shooting of uh, that series when it was still in the air. Anyway, uh, I, I think that uh, this series, Zero Hour, um, ended up probably having some trouble in that folks would tune in skip a day or two and probably couldn't follow the storyline too well and that sort of thing. You really had to tune in every night. And that would be a difficult thing to ask people to do, and I just don't think they were willing to do that. Um, I think the way we present it as one long chunk, it might have actually done better uh, for someone tuning in and listening to the whole thing. I don't I don't know. Um, it's just, I guess it was closer to an audiobook than a television, than a radio show, and uh, maybe it was just ahead of its time. Anyway, we get another episode in stereo, which is always fun, and so I hope you're going to enjoy. This is one of my favorite episodes. Uh, lots of suspense in this episode. Lots of um, uh, time for you to kind of wrap your head around the different mystery pieces and see if you can put the clues together um, in this great series. So, without further ado, here is Zero Hour. Desperate Witness, starring Richard Crenna. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Kenneth Fearing's study of a deadly obsession. Desperate witness. 
starring Richard Cranker. Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. This week, a tale set in the frenetic, high-pressure world of big business, where the individual is a desperate single figure at the mercy of a ruthless organization... This is the story of George Stroud. He has a choice. Reveal himself and expose his fraudulence, or attempt to cover his tracks and run. For George Stroud, the choice is out of his hands and into those of the big clock, that impersonal, bloodless symbol of time. George Stroud is about to become both the hunter and the quarry. Our story, Desperate Witness, begins after this word. She was tall, ice blonde, and wearing a hands-off sign hung on her by the great Earl Janeth. If I'd been smart, I'd have given her a wide berth. But then if I'd been smart, I'd be the head of an international publications conglomerate, and Earl Janeth would be working for me. But I'm not so smart. I returned her cool nod, and I filed away for future reference the invitation in her eyes. And it all led to murder, with me caught in a web, trapped, running for my life. I first saw Pauline Dulles at one of those parties Earl Janet liked to give in his minor palace in the East 60s to impress investors and moguls and to keep reminding his staff how lowly they really were. My wife was at my elbow, dazzling a group with quick conversational footwork. Sorry we're so late. We couldn't get away from President McKinley. <laughs> now, our 24th president at the bar of the Silver Lining. Well, that is tonight he was McKinley. Sometimes he's Justice Holmes, Thomas Edison. He has an earthly alias, but I've forgotten it. When he's very drunk, he's Abe Lincoln and he frees the slaves. <laughs> she's some lady, my wife. You'd think with a magnet like that, a man would stay put. But there was another, more powerful force in that room. I tried not to look at Pauline Dulles, but I could sense everywhere she was. A hundred or more people drifted in and out. Old wine and new bottles. Old conversation and changing faces. When it was time to make the last train home, Earl Janeth emerged from somewhere, and Georgette and I said our goodbyes. Well, glad you could come, Stroud. I'm delighted to see you, Mrs. Stroud. You, uh, you should always wear polka dots. I'll go home and put spots on everything, like a Dalmatian. Oh, no, 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 no. More like a uh, pinto pony. <laughs> Watch out for your boss, George. He's turning my head again. My pleasure. Believe me, dear lady, my pleasure. Well, uh, good night. Good night. Oh, uh, too bad you were late, Stroud. You missed Major Conklin. He likes what we've been doing recently with crime waves, and I told him that uh, you're the moving force there. He was quite complimentary. Sorry to have missed him. Oh, that string of graveyard magazines he just absorbed, he wants to activate them, but I explained to him I didn't think a man, you know, of your precision mentality could advise him. He needs a geomancer. 
It's uh, been a pleasant evening, Mr. Janet. Well, it has, it has. Good night. Like a whip, Janet turned and left. We were dismissed. Now, let's grab this cab. Grand Central. Well, did you think so, George? I had fun. Mm. You don't really like working for Janet, do you? Hmm. I don't believe in forcing square pegs into round holes. Neither do you. Cost is too high. I mean, well, sometimes it seems to me we were much happier when we had the roadhouse. Weren't we? For that matter, it was fun when you were a racetrack detective. Even the all-night broadcasting job. It was crazy, but I liked it. I'm executive editor for Crimeways magazine, and we're halfway to a down payment on that piece of land you'd like. Now your lipstick's all worn off. Then you might as well kiss me. Hmm. George, what's a geomancer? I don't know. Georgie Janet got it out of the fattest dictionary printed. He wrote it on his cuff, and now the rest of us know why he's a boss. Yeah, remind me to look the word up. I would look it up and drop it into my conversation sometime. But it wouldn't satisfy because he'd had it first. Because he had everything. My wife's head on my shoulder, and still I... Couldn't get Pauline Dulles out of my mind. Was it only because I wanted to take something away from him? The question was put aside by the big clock. Time. Pressing. And you're the mouse, scurrying around and across the intricate wheels and balances. Cobweb mazes. False exits. Dangerous blind alleys and steep runways. Natural traps and artificial baits. Honey for the true opening. A real prize. And the clock strikes and it's too late. And you're a prisoner again. Locked up nine to five. And there I am looking in the mirror at a half-shaved face, practicing what I'd like to say to Earl Janeth. Look here, Janeth, we really got to do something about getting me more money. Well, I thought, George, that you went over this whole thing with Steve Hagen months yeah. ago. He said to talk to you, you said to talk to him. Yes, you and Steve settled it, right? How'd you like it if I took something away from you, huh? Something priceless, something exquisite, something you bought and paid for. George! Honey, come down. Your waffle's getting cold. Janet Enterprises. 29 floors of publication, syndication, circulation. Stop by any corner newsstand for the full smorgasbord. Weekly, monthly, quarterly. We put them all out. Newsways Magazine, Commerce, Sportland, Plastic Tomorrow, Personalities, The Sexes, Future Ways. 26th floor, Prime Ways. That's me. In theory, we're the nation's police blotter. In practice, we're one of the biggest circulations of Janus' empire because everybody's fascinated with crime. Which is what my associate editor, Roy Cordette, and staff were discussing when I got in that morning. Dozens of people are murdered every day. But is it criminal? Uh, uh, morning, George. Morning, Roy. Leon. Morning. Morning, Ed. George, we're talking about the mass murder outside of Reading. Mm. I tell him we ought to run that story. It'll sell six million copies. Yes, Leon, but is it for crime way? Yes. 
Hours piled on top of each other while we juggled stories of murder, rape, robbery, analyzing what sells, what doesn't, sociological research, parole board reports, decisions of the Supreme Court, interspersed with fights with our budget department and a temperamental photographer. It's quarter after six when I escape my desk after the inevitable phone call home that I'd be late for dinner. The babysitter informed me that my wife had gone to her sister's in Trenton on some emergency and might not be home till morning. So there I was. If Georgette had been home and said, come home, maybe none of this would have happened. (laughs) No, no, that's a cop-out. I wanted it to happen. I made it happen. At about 6.30, I walked into the silver lining, sat at the bar alone, studying my face in the mirror, replaying my imaginary conversation with Janeth about a raise. He still said no. I told him where he could go, and I had another double shot. I must run, darling. You coming? No, uh, not yet. Well, it's lovely seeing you. Enjoy the drink. Bye. I didn't have to turn. The mirror gave me the picture. Two expensive, chic women. One brunette, one blonde. The brunette gathered up packages from Saks and Barnwitz and left to brighten summer's evening. The blonde stayed. She smiled at me. Pauline Dulles. Hello. Hello there. Join me? (laughs) Why not? You remember me, don't you? Vividly. I remember you. You're a friend of President McKinley, and this is where you met him, right? Is he here tonight? His real name's Clyde something. No, he's not here tonight in any of his disguises. Oh, that's too bad. I was looking forward to it. Well, you don't want to go out with McKinley. He was assassinated. Safer going out with me. I wasn't worrying about being safe. You've come to the right place. We had three margaritas... Was it four? I pushed our Mexican food around our plates. She made a phone call to clear her calendar. I finished a drink I seemed to have in my hand, and I, too, made a phone call to the understanding manager of the Lexington Plaza who just happened to have an unobtrusive room for us. We walked to the hotel. I knew I should turn back, but I couldn't. I'd stepped off the deep end. finally sorted out the message. Hello? I'm sorry, sir, but you don't have a reservation for today. My eyes focusing now, but barely. Showed me an impersonal hotel room, two glasses, an empty scotch bottle, my clothes, and me. There's another party checking in. The hotel is filled, otherwise we wouldn't disturb you, sir. Her perfume was there, but she was gone. Checkout time is noon. And what time's it now? One thirty. In the p.m.? A shower, 
shaved with a razor thoughtfully provided by the management, and black, black coffee turned me back to a reasonable facsimile of George Stroud. All the way down the boulevard, I rehearsed what I'd say to my wife. I never got to deliver the speech. George Ed's sister had had her appendix out in the night, and the babysitter never even told her I hadn't gotten home. I developed skill at lying those next weeks, and I stayed in town more and more. There was a sense of adventure, finding different temporary abodes. Once we spent a weekend as far away as Albany, when my wife and daughter were away and Janet was in Washington. It got to be a game, thinking up different names for the register. I'm sorry, sir, your handwriting. How do you pronounce it? Uh, Phelps Guillon, Mr. and Mrs. Andrew Phelps Guillon. Yes, sir. I hope you enjoy your stay in Albany. The Phelps Guillon enjoyed every moment of it. George Mrs. Phelps Guillon, you are the last, final, beautiful, ultimate enigma. And I thought it was your art collection that you cared about. No, no, no collection. I do have quite a few Pattersons. I never heard of him. Her, her, Louise Patterson. You know what you are? Ignorant. Ignorant and beautiful and threatening and destructive. You're a dangerous man, George Stroud. Me? <laughs> Kittens get belligerent when they see me coming. They sharpen their claws. It is dangerous to know you. Quit thinking about Janice. There's nothing to be afraid of. He doesn't own you. He doesn't own me. Now drop Janice. Those moments came up and passed. Like the night and the morning and the long drive back to the city. And the constant, insistent pull of the big clock saying the interlude's over. I couldn't let her go. Not quite yet. We walked, reluctant for our time together to end. Window shopping antique stores. Some still open, hoping for a last-minute sale of a nightcrawler. It was in the window of a cluttered corner shop that I saw the painting. Just two hands. One receiving a coin from the other. Unframed, dust-covered, curled at the edges, but unmistakably a Patterson. I was inside, Pauline trailing as the shopkeeper lifted the musty canvas out of the window and handed it to a big, sloppily dressed monolith of a woman with a voice that could cut steel and a face to match. Ha! It's in rotten condition. Not worth much. What do you want for it? I don't know. Make me an offer. Fifteen, twenty? Twenty? There's not a quarter's worth of paint on this crummy thing. I'll give you five. Take it and be grateful. Five. Fifty dollars. Hey, I'm buying this picture. Get your hands off it. Who do you think you are just because you got money? Lousy painting, nothing but a couple of hands. Not worth fifty. I've made my bid, fifty. Can you match it? It was obvious she didn't have the money and I couldn't have cared less. The shopkeeper was licking his lips for the fifty. The last Patterson I'd bought cost me nine hundred dollars and it was considered a bargain. I paid him in cash. Pauline thought I was crazy. At the cocktail lounge of the Van Barth, we stopped for a nightcap and we argued about the value of the painting. Even in the dim, candlelit saloon, I could tell my 50 was a good investment. The hands of Judas. No, no, the temptation of Judas. That's what we'll call it. Yeah, but Judas got 30 coins. Just the same. It's Judas. 30 coins or one. Oh, okay. The temptation of Judas. 
Shall we, uh, shall we drink to that? Oh, I'm sorry, George. The dedication was delayed. Pauline's drink was all over the table. I rescued her with my handkerchief, then I called the waiter to clean up. We moved to the bar, we drank to the temptation of Judas, and we left. It was just past ten when we came out of the Van Barth. I drove the few blocks to 58 East, Pauline's apartment. As usual, I parked well away from the entrance. And as always, when I brought her home, I felt uneasy at the risk we were running. I got out of the car. I handed her the small overnight bag she'd taken to Albany. It was all beautiful, George. Beautiful. She kissed me and hurried away. Beyond her retreating figure, I vaguely noticed a limousine pull in at the curb opposite the building's entrance. There was something familiar about the posture of the man who got out of it. He put his head back into the car to issue instructions to a chauffeur who drove away. Then he turned for a moment in my direction. In the light that fell on his face, I saw that it was Earl Janeth. He looked directly toward me and followed Pauline into the building. I didn't move. I stayed hard-pressed back into the shadows. My job, my future, my family, all up for grabs. If he had recognized me. I heard him call out her name before the door to the building closed behind them. Had he seen me, recognized me? Would she tell him about me? Colleen. Now, look, you saw me. Why are you pretending you didn't see me? Earl, dear, don't be cross. It's oh. late. All right, dear, I'll ring the elevator. You don't have to do it for yourself. The doorman's never around. I've learned to do these little things. Yes, uh, your overnight bag. Shouldn't he have brought it in if he were any kind of a gentleman? Did you have a nice trip, Earl? I didn't care about Washington. And you, did you uh, have a pleasant weekend? It was marvelous. I went riding and swimming. I read a grand book, and I met some of the most interesting brand new people. Was he one of them? One of whom? Oh, you mean the brand new people. Yes. Uh, what did you do together? Darling, please, let me get inside and get my shoes off. Make yourself a drink. Where did you go with them? Tonight? Well, first we went to a terrible place on 3rd Avenue by the name of Gills. You'd love it. Yeah. Kind of a combination archaeology foundation and saloon. <laughs> it's really weird. After that, we walked up and down the street shopping for antiques. Antiques? Mm-hmm. Finally, we bought a painting. At least he did. In a shop about three blocks from here. It was an awful old thing. Looked like it had just come out of a dustbin. He practically kidnapped it from another customer. Some woman who bid for it, too. Nothing but a couple of hands by an artist named Patterson. A couple of what? Hands, darling, just hands. A picture about Judas. <laughs> After that, we went to the Van Barth and had a few drinks, and he brought me home. That's where you came in. Satisfied? Uh, interesting itinerary. Seems it would take more like a weekend than an evening. We move fast. Well, uh, who is this fast-moving, brand-new person? He's in advertising. Name's George Chester. Uh -huh. Drink your brandy. 
Oh, thank you. Well, at least this time it's a man. Just what do you mean by that? You know what I mean. Are you bringing up that thing again, throwing Alice in my face? You never forget Alice, do you? Do you? Are you damn mean imitation, Napoleon? You're a fine one to talk. That's price. Yes? How about you and Steve Hagen? What about me and Steve Hagen? Every time I see you two together. Steve and me? As if you didn't know. You say this about Steve? The saddest man that ever lived. And me? Are you so dumb you lived this long without even knowing you it? You have no right to say such things about Steve. She was killed at 10.30 Saturday night. I didn't hear about her murder until I read Monday morning's newspaper. For her, it was over. For me, it was just beginning. I didn't know what hell was about. But I was to find out. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense. Desperate Witness. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Desperate Witness was adapted from Kenneth Fearing's The Big Clock by Gwen Bagney and Paul Duboff. Richard Crenna is Strong. Keenan Wynn is Jonathan. And Julie Adams is Georgette. Featured in the cast are Paul Duboff as Leon, Larry Thor as Roy, Gene Howell as the woman, Deborah Wally as Pauline, Benny Rubin as the shopkeeper, and Jane Dulo as Patterson. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is the executive producer, and Karen Lee Cohn, associate producer. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferenti and Teicher, and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow, and once again, rest your eyes. And listen here to the Zero Hour. Radio Theater.
every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Kenneth Fearing's study of a deadly obsession. Desperate witness. Starring Richard Kramer. Keenan Wynn. And Julie Adams. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. father, executive editor of Crimeways magazine, a restless man, never quite satisfied with what he has, Earl Jonoth, arrogant, pedantic publishing mogul, Stroud's boss, Pauline Delos, ice blonde, cool, the boss's mistress, George Stroud, Earl Jonoth, Pauline Delos. Three sides to the eternal triangle that meet but for one moment. The formula is timeless. The connection is murder. And for George Stroud, like the taut mainspring of a clock overwound, life itself is about to explode on the hour. Our story, Desperate Witness, continues after this word. I had intended going straight home, but after I saw Janet go into the apartment with Pauline, I felt the need to wander a while in limbo. Up to that point, I'd meticulously kept my wife and my family in one niche in my life, and Pauline sealed off from them in another. To go home irritated with the thought of Pauline and Janet being together was to somehow overlap the two, spoil the waters, so to speak. So I went back to Gill's, where I could have an anonymous drink and dull the churning within me that Janet had set off. The night was a couple of hours older when I drove into my garage on Marble Road and went into the paneled, comfortable suburban house with all its little scars of family living. The painting I'd bought, The Temptation of Judas, I simply laid down on the dining room table. It would have to be cleaned, repaired, and framed. I'd made a pot of coffee, and I thought about my wife and daughter who'd be returning tomorrow, Sunday. So help me, that's all that was on my mind when I fell asleep. Not knowing that Pauline was dead. Murdered. If I'd known what was happening back in the city in Steve Hagen's apartment, I wouldn't have closed my eyes. Coming. Coming. Earl, come in. What is it? What's wrong? Close the door, will you please hurry? What is it? Sit down. I'll get you a drink. Steve, I I just killed Pauline. 
You should have killed her years ago. Well, I do. I, I go to prison, Steve. Stop it. Who saw you come here? Huh? Here. Anyone see you? Well, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I hit her over the head with something. A decanter, I think. Maybe three. Maybe ten times. Fingerprints? Oh, I wiped them off and off the doorknob. The doorman wasn't on duty when I went in or when I came out. Get out of those clothes. I'll get rid of them. There's blood on them. Look, I, I killed her. I didn't intend to. It's just... Well, it's the pressure. I didn't get anywhere in Washington. Jonathan Enterprises is in real trouble. What am I going to do, Steve? The SEC's after me. Jenna Donahue's trying to force me to merge and sell. Forget all about that for now. You sure nobody saw you go into her apartment? Who's that? Who's... Steve Hagen here. Well, Mr. Hagen, I hate to bother you at home. Uh, this is uh, Emery Mapperson. Well, what can I do for you, Emery? Well, I just heard a disquieting rumor that the magazine's going to fold. Uh, Mr. Janice, right here, we've been in conference over the same stupid rumor. Hold a minute, I'll let you talk to him. Go on, Earl, talk. But who is it? Who is he? I... He works for us, Future Ways. Tell him the rumor he heard is false. Everything's okay. His name's Mafferson, Emery. <clears throat> hello, Emery. Oh, hello, Mr. Janet. Look, uh, a lot of false rumors floating around. All that talk. I don't want you to believe a thing. Oh, great. I, I feel relieved, Mr. Janet. Well, it's good to talk to Emery. Anytime, and keep up the good work. What was that all about? You just established your alibi. When the police investigate you, as they will when your relationship with Dallas comes out, we have the testimony of Mafferson that he talked to you in my apartment at... What time did you kill her? Oh, I don't know. 10.30? 10, 10 minutes of 11. And they'll have your chauffeur's testimony. He dropped you here right from the airport at 10. And mine, that we've been in conference ever since. And since no one can identify you as having been in the building... There was someone... Someone did see me. Saw you go in? Yes, yes, a stranger. He was just leaving Paul in. They'd been away together for the evening, maybe for the weekend. That's why we quarreled. That's what started the whole thing. Did he recognize Well, him? I don't know. Did you recognize him? No, he was in the shadows. I couldn't tell much. She said his name was George Chester. One man in the world saw you go into her building, and you don't know who he was? Whether he knew you or recognized you? Well, I don't know. I don't We've got know. to find him before the police. How can we do that? What do we employ 2,000 people for? Well, if we find this man, then what? It all depends. When the story breaks, he may go straight to the police. In that case, our alibi stands, and our line is this. He says he saw you on the scene. What was he doing there? That makes him as hot as you are. We'll make him even warmer. Of course. You mean only to scare him off. If he doesn't scare, the case goes to trial. You've got an alibi. But if he doesn't go to the police the minute this breaks, then what? He's a constant threat to your safety, your position in life, your place in the world. Can you put up with an intolerable situation like that? I don't like it. There's already been one tragedy. I don't want another. Not if I... Not if I know what you mean. You know what I mean. No. No, I won't see a man killed in cold blood. I won't take any part in it. Let me ask you, Earl. Are you ready to retire to a penitentiary and write your memoirs? 
Are you ready to take your full responsibilities along with the rewards? Now, we never went to murder before, but we will this time if we have to. Hi, children. I can't get that out of our mind. Killed Pauline. When you break, a lot of other people break, too. Whenever an entity like Janeth Enterprises goes under, and that's what this could trigger, a lot of innocent people, their plans, homes, dreams, aspirations, the future of their children, all of that can go to pieces with it. Myself, for instance. I understand, Steve. All right, what has to be has to be. Now, let's get to work. Finish your drink, and we'll start from the top again. I want every step, every word. You got out of your car. You sent your chauffeur on. You went into the apartment with her. I knew none of this when it was happening. I awoke in the morning and went to the train to pick up my wife and child. I hadn't even dreamed in the night. And my world was coming apart. <laughs> Monday morning, and Georgette came back to the breakfast table from taking our daughter to the bus. George, have you seen the paper? There's a dreadful story about a woman we met, I think, at Janoff's. Sitting there in the sunny breakfast room, fresh-picked yellow roses on the table, I read it. Not understanding it, not believing it. I had to read the headline twice. But the picture was of Pauline... Her body had been discovered at about noon on Sunday. Her death had been fixed at around 10.30 the night before. Saturday, I just left her minutes before. Isn't that the same woman? Yes, yes, it is. She was beaten to death with a heavy decanter. I'm, I'm reading. I'm... I was grateful to have the paper to hide behind. My hands were shaking as I read the words. No arrests had been made, the paper said. Her immediate friends were being questioned, Earl Janeth among them, but the publisher had not seen her for several days. He'd just returned that night from Washington and had gone straight from the airport to a business associate's where he spent the evening in discussion. The business associate was not named. Horrible story. Aren't you going to finish your coffee? It's decaffeinated. Good for you. George? Something the matter? What? Oh, no. No, no, darling, nothing. Well, don't look so grim. By the way, I didn't tell you I like that new painting you brought home. The one of the two hands. But it's in terrible condition. Another Patterson, isn't it? Hmm. Perhaps. George, you don't have to be so monosyllabic. Can't you say anything but yes, no, perhaps? Where'd you get it? Just uh, picked it up. Honey, I'm trying to read the paper. Pauline and Earl Janeth went into that building at 10 o'clock on Saturday night. Now he claimed he hadn't seen her for days. He had to have been the one who killed her. Had he recognized me? If he had seen me that night, it would all come out. The weeks with Pauline, the lying, the whole sordid story. My life, my career, my marriage, family. All threatened. He killed her. He had to have been the one. How strong was his alibi? Could he make it stick? And if he did, where did that put me? On the train going into town, I read every newspaper, virtually memorizing what was known as a murder, but gathering no real information. 
It was warm in the city. Unseasonally warm. But I was... It was cold. My hands, I noted, were white. My fingertips bloodless. In the mirrored elevator, I found myself staring at the strange face that was my own. Not a face, really, but a, a caricature. Lines like deep cuts that hadn't been there yesterday. Pallor. Mouth slightly open, breathing shallow. All unmistakable signs of fear of a man in a desperate... desperate panic. I had 26 floors to gain control. When I stepped out of the elevator, I was wearing the mask, the facade of the confident, secure executive... Morning, Lucille. Any calls for me? Steve Hagen's called twice. Better get right up there. Oh, why? What's up? I don't know, but you know Hagen. Nobody knew Hagen. He was a hard little man whose soul had been hit by lightning. His mother was a bank vault, his father a computer. Steve Hagen was almost as loyal to Janeth as to himself. From what I knew of their backgrounds, Hagen was the kingmaker, Janeth the publications genius. But Hagen was the steel foundation that held things together. Everything about Hagen's office was designed to throw you on the left foot. I hadn't been privileged to enter his sanctorum often, but every time the same thing happened. That loss of confidence. You opened the door and you saw him across an acre of office. A small man sitting at a huge raised desk. He didn't look up, which was part of his style. I started across to him, trying to remember exactly where the drop was. You couldn't see it from the door. The carpet was patterned and disguised it, but there was a, a step down, and always it came as a jolt. You started across in confidence and suddenly, abruptly, found yourself walking out into space and grabbing at the air, and you spent the rest of the distance trying to regain your equilibrium and your poise. You lost on both counts. Morning, Stroud. Oh, good morning. Morning, Steve. Stroud, anything on your agenda at the moment you're to drop? Oh, everything? Your staff can handle things. I have something more important for you. Uh-huh. If you say so. Oh, by the way, I've uh, just read about that uh, Pauline Delos murder. It's pretty awful. You any idea? Yes, it's bad. No, we have no idea about it. Hmm. Well, I suppose Janeth is, uh... He is, yes, but I don't know any more about it than you do. Now, I have some prepared notes here, so let's get to work, huh? We have a job on our hands. It's not hard, but delicate. It seems you're about the best man on the staff to direct it. Mm, Yes? In essence, the job is this. We want you to locate somebody unknown to us. Really, it's a missing persons job. Would that be all right with you? Well, missing persons seems to fit in with the essence of crime ways, and that's my job, crime ways. Of course, of course. Uh, but who is it uh, that you want me to locate? We don't know. Oh. Let me see now. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? The person we want went into some Third Avenue bar and grill called Gill's last Saturday afternoon. It's a weird kind of bar, more a museum. He wasn't looking at me. He was studying his notes where he'd have seen the sweat that popped out on my face. I could feel the trap being sprung for me.
Before the rising nausea, my cheek muscles formed a slight smile that froze into place and gave me, I hoped, a look of complete concentration. But my mind was racing at light years' speed as he reeled off my actions on the day of the murder. This man we're looking for, Stroud, was accompanied by a rather striking blonde, also unidentified. They later went to a Third Avenue antique shop. In fact, they browsed through several, but in one, they... That is, he bought a painting from a dealer, overbidding another customer, a woman who also wanted to buy it. The picture was by an artist named Patterson. According to our morgue... He, or somebody, had done a quick and thorough research job on Patterson. He had all the details, how 10, 12 years back she'd been hailed as a meteor in the art world, that she'd never fulfilled her promise... In recent years, was totally unheard of, although her work maintained value. He had all the details of my transaction. He knew the painting depicted two hands, was in rather bad condition, and that I'd bought it for $50. After they bought the painting, the man and the woman with him went to a cocktail lounge in Van Barth for a few drinks. It's possible he checked the picture there. He may have had it right with him. Why do you want this man, Steve? We think our party is a vital figure in a business and political conspiracy that's reached colossal proportions. You mean threatening Janeth Enterprises? Exactly. What this man represents could destroy Earl Janeth. And we can't let that happen, can we? So, what do we do? Well, we just have to find this man. We can't have him loose, threatening all our existences, can we? Oh, as we understand it, his name is George Chester. I understood it all now. Pauline had given Janet the full rundown of our Saturday night activities. And had she told him where we spent the night Friday, they'd probably had a violent fight about it, and he'd killed her and gone straight to Hagen. Then Steve Hagen was the business associate the newspapers mentioned who provided Janet's alibi. It was plain Janeth knew he'd been seen and was afraid he'd been recognized. <laughs> the ground I was on felt landmined. One step the wrong way. It's all pretty vague, Hagen. Can't you give me more to go on? You're right, Stroud. It is vague. Our information is based entirely on rumors and tips and certain, well, striking coincidences. When we locate our man, then we'll have something definite for the first time. Well, what's it to be? A story for crimeways? No. No, I don't think so. I don't know right now just what our angle will be when we have it. We might want to give it a big play in one of our books eventually. A good story should never be wasted, right? Or we might decide to use it in some entirely different way. It's all up in the air. Well, tell me, who else is in on this? Should we cooperate with anyone? The cops, for instance? No. No, of course not. Absolutely not. This is our story, exclusively. It must stay that way. You'll have to go to other agencies for information, naturally, but you get it. You don't give it. Is that perfectly clear? Yes, I understand. Now, do you think you can knock together a staff as large as you want and locate this person? It would be easier if I knew more about this uh, mystery guy, what he looks like. Somebody must have described him. Well, not too well, but we do know he's of average build and height. Weight 150 to 180, under six feet. It's possible he's in advertising. But your best bet is this place called Gill's or the shop where he bought the picture or the bar of the Van Barth. 
Oh, and that picture he bought. Perhaps the artist. I have a feeling that picture alone might give us a break. Not impossible. We want this guy in a hurry. Can you do it? You say his name's Chester, George Chester? It might be, he might not. Oh, that's a start. Then you go to work immediately? Supposing I do find him, supposing it's possible to find a guy with so little to go on, what's the next step? At that point, you're through. It's our ball game, then. Oh, <laughs> well, I'd like to see an assignment through to the bitter end. I... Your job is to find him. When you do, turn his name and where he is over to me, that's all. The assignment is top priority, Stroud. It has the right-of-way over everything. You can raid any magazine, use any bureau, any editor, correspondent, all the resources we have. Just find him. All right, Steve. I'll take the assignment. I have absolute carte blanche? Absolute. Expanse, personnel, everything. In every way except time. We want him now. He got up from the high back throne and wandered to the huge plate glass windows that looked out over about 10 million people. I hadn't suspected this cold, dried man would have had such a sense of drama. He took a long pause and he swept his hand out, indicating the city far beneath us. Our man is out there somewhere, Stroud. May even be very close for all we know. It's a simple job for a mind like yours. Get him. I looked out the window myself. Get him, he said. Find him. I had found him. The man I sought was looking back at me. My own reflection in the plate glass. I'd been assigned to set myself up to be murdered. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes. And listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, Desperate Witness. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Desperate Witness was adapted from Kenneth Fearing's The Big Plot by Gwen Bagney and Paul Dubon. Richard Crenna is Stroud. Keenan Wynn is Janeth. And Julie Adams is Georgette. Featured in the cast are Tom Troop as Hagen and Richard Deacon as Matheson. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is the executive producer and Karen Lee Cohen, associate producer. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferenti and Teicher. It is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again, rest your eyes and listen to To the Zero Hour.
Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Kenneth Fearing's study of a deadly obsession. Desperate witness. Starring Richard Cranker. Keenan Wynn. Julie Adams. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. There's a nursery rhyme that refers to the mouse that ran up the clock. That clock is marking time, and time stops for no man. George Stroud, executive editor of Crimeways magazine, will now conduct a search for a man. A man who saw someone enter an apartment building the night of a murder. A desperate witness he alone knows to be himself. Our story will continue in a moment. If I picked the right kind of staff, twisted the investigation where I could, jammed it where I had to, pushed hard where it was safe, it might be a long time before anybody connected me with George Chester. Hopefully before that I could turn suspicion where it belonged, to the real murderer, Janet. Roy Cordette got them all together for me. I'd rely on Roy the heaviest. His office was next to mine. Also, he had the most analytical mind, so I wanted to keep my eye on him. I was behind my desk, playing it cool. A secure executive as they all trooped in. Ed Orland, Don Klausmeyer, Leon Temple, Matt Sperling, and Roy. I've briefed everybody, George, to drop whatever they're currently doing. Fine. Thanks, Roy. Now, you're all being asked to take on a, a rather strange job. It has to be done quickly and quietly. I know I can rely on you. We've been given a blank check as far as the resources of the organization are concerned. If we need help on your particular assignments, just ask. Raid any department you need. Something special, come to me or to Roy here, who's second in command. What's it about? We're looking for somebody, Leon. Oh. Right now, we'll uh, call him X. We don't know much about him. His name may be George Chester. It's possible he's in advertising. That'll be your assignment, Nat. Combing ad agencies, clubs, PR offices, newspapers, etc., 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 Leon, check all real estate registers, tax records, public utilities, phone books of cities within, say, three, four hundred miles for a George Chester. Yeah. Take all the people you need to help you. I've got it. 
Now, all we've got is a name, and we're not even sure of that. We haven't even got a good description of him. Just say he's of average height, say 5'9 to 11, average build, probably between 140 and 190. <laughs> That's not much to go on. No, he's apparently a regular of a place on 3rd Avenue called Gills. He was supposedly there last Saturday afternoon with a woman that we know to be a good-looking blonde. That's all we know about her. Now, that'll be your job, Ed. Find this joint, whatever it is, and when you do, stay there until our Mr. X comes into it. Now, on the same evening, our subject went into an antique shop, also on 3rd Avenue. He went into several, but in this particular one, he bought a painting, unframed, after outbidding another customer, a woman. That'll be your gig, Don. All you've told us about this man took place last Saturday. Wasn't that the night Pauline Dellis was killed? She's connected with Janeth. He was in Washington. Is that what this is about? No, no connection. Not as far as I know. It's purely a big-time business scandal that Hagen himself and a few others have been digging into. Now it's due to break. Yeah, well, I just thought it's quite a coincidence. No. Do we make inquiries about the blonde woman who was with this guy? No, you'll all have to do that. But we're not looking for the woman or any other outside person. It's I, the man we uh, want. Only the man. All right? Yeah. No more mm -hmm. questions? Sure. I suppose you intellectual tramps get out of here and get to work. Okay. Okay. Bye. They were gone, except Roy. His was the sharpest, most analytical mind my greatest hazard. I could feel the wheels in his head turning. I waited while he walked around the desk, then crossed to the wall, facing it, hands thrust into his pockets. He leaned against the wall, staring at the carpet. George, this is a crazy affair. I can't help feeling Don hit the nail on the head. Well, how do you mean? There's a curious connection there, the fact that all of this happened last Saturday... I don't understand. Well, I don't mean it has any connection with Pauline Dulles' murder. Of course it hasn't. That'd be a little too obvious. But I can't help thinking there's something. I, I don't know what. Something happened last week on Friday or Saturday, perhaps while Janeth was in Washington, that would really explain why we're looking for this mysterious art-collecting stranger at this particular moment and in such a hurry. What do you think? Ooh, sounds logical. There's a rumor... That Janeth Enterprises is in real financial trouble. That's why he went to Washington. Did you know that? No, no, I didn't. Oh, well, it's confidential. Don't ask me how I learned of it, but Janeth could be fighting a buyout or a merger. He was standing against the wall, and I was suddenly aware of the picture above his head as though it screamed at me. My whole staff out looking for a man who collected Pattersons? Well, the Pattersons stared right back at me. It had hung on my wall so long I no longer saw it. I'd bought it at the Lewis Galleries two years back, a profile of two faces showing only the brow, eyes, nose, lips, chins, facing each other in confrontation. In style, unmistakably Patterson. The artist called it Study and Fury. I keep thinking the man we're looking for could very well be tied to the Janet Donahue group. Janet Donahue? Yeah, off the record, they're the ones trying to break Janet Enterprises. I think I ought to, on the side, follow up on that? Good idea. Good idea, Roy. Hell of a good hunch. Follow it up and stick with it. He was hooked for now on a false lead. I held my breath as he moved from the wall, but he didn't glance at the Patterson painting. Closed the door and went back to his own office. When he was gone, I sat for a long time, feeling the aftershock and beads of perspiration all over me. Painting, staring at me all the time I'd given orders to find me. 
It was dangerous, but it would have to stay there. No one had noticed it, but if I moved it, its absence would cry out like a banshee. Now it would have to stay there on the wall, even though at any moment someone might make the connection. I'd always liked that painting. Now it was a threat. And that Patterson I'd taken home. My wife had seen it. Once I'd got over the initial shock of having dispatched an army of leg men to track myself down, I began to feel more secure. I had one great advantage. I alone knew where each one of them was at all times. I could evaluate the bits and pieces they brought me, could divert their direction, keep them from comparing notes, discredit anything that got too close for comfort. I'd be under the big clock from now on. It was a desperate race between the police... Janet and myself. Would the police get to me before they got to Janet? Could I get to Janet before Hagen got to me? I sent Mapperson to cover the police. I couldn't send one of my own staff. They were too crime-wise. Mapperson was an intellectual on Future Ways staff. Send him to cover a murder story, he'd end up writing a philosophical piece about prison reform. He'd been on staff ten years, probably hadn't spoken a hundred consecutive words to anybody. Anything Mapperson dug up would be for my ears only. And that's what I wanted. He came into my office, his plump face, as usual, vague. His expression, an eternal puzzlement. They took me off my assignment, and I was doing a piece on molecular structure. Emery, I'm involved in a special outside job. The whole staff's working on it. But at the same time, one of the most sensational murders of the year has occurred. Pauline Delos. You must have read the newspaper account. Oh, I believe I glanced at it. Oh, isn't she, uh, uh, Jenna's lady friend? Mm, wasn't she? Right. Well, this special assignment's taking all our time around here, but we can't let crimeways be left at the post. We can't let a big story like the Delos murder get away from us. Well, I'm sorry. I don't understand where I'd fit in. Look, the usual policy would be to break it, give it a big play, 20 or 30 leg men. This time, since my guys are busy, we'll do the reverse. I want you to go in there quietly, alone. You want me to cover it? A totally different approach. Fresh. You'll bring it something new, sensitive, not the usual expose. I want you to keep this assignment to yourself, because I still haven't sold it upstairs, you know what I mean? But a crime story, that's so out of my experience. Start at Center Street, Homicide Bureau. Pick up everything as and when it happens. Phone it in to me, and me only, everything. I want to be kept up to date on every phase of the Dulles story. Well, now, will, will this be all right with Hagen? You know, he put me on future yeah, ways. Don't worry, no, I'll fix it with Hagen. And I'll fix it with Janice, too. That's the beauty of a monolithic organization. The right hand doesn't suspect what the left hand's doing. By the time Hagen found out about Mafferson, I'd either be in the clear, or it'd be too late for me anyway. I rode down to the garage, got into my car, and drove off, intending to go straight home and get rid of that painting I'd bought. But I turned down a side street, and I found myself heading toward Pauline's apartment. It was the first I'd been there since that night. All this energy spent trying to plot my own survival, and I hadn't really stopped to think about her. The image of that beautiful neck, broken... Perfect body, lifeless, 
to pull over to the curb, pull myself together, force my mind to look for a weakness, a flaw in Janice's alibi. I had to be one. I went back over Saturday night, every step. I'd just taken Pauline home. My car's parked around the corner. I let her off. I'm not going into the lobby, so far as anyone in the building knows, I don't exist. I'm a distance off. I see Janeth drive up. He gets out of his car. He catches up with Pauline. He goes in with her. And what did he do after that? He killed her. Then he had to get away. But he'd sent his chauffeur on. Now, how'd he get to Steve Hagen's? I drove the logical route from Pauline's to Hagen's. Saw two nearby cab stands. Janeth could have used one of them if he'd taken a taxi to Hagen's. Unless he found a cruising cab. Now, he certainly wouldn't have been so stupid as to pick one up at Pauline's door. The farthest cab stand was the likeliest. I'd begin there, and then I'd try the nearer. No, it was dangerous. Because cabbies talk to cops. No, not yet. I'd have to be careful and wait until I knew what the police knew. I got back to my office just as Roy called in the first report. Hello? It's Roy, George. Listen, I'm at Gill's Tavern with Ed Orland. It's a nut house. You know, this guy's got a museum here that looks like... Well, what'd you find out? Well, the bartender, who's the chief lunatic around here, described our man as intelligent, eccentric. You sound like you don't agree. <laughs> eccentric, yes, but only a moron would come into a dump like this and spend hours talking to the guy who runs this menagerie. Is that all? Well, physical description we have doesn't seem far wrong. But nothing to add to it except he's brown-haired, clean-cut. Anything on the blonde? Nothing. Yeah, it certainly isn't much, is it? Well, wait. Our man is unquestionably a lush. Who? Four or five years ago, he was in here every night. Had to be sent home in a cab. At that time, he was a newspaper man. Bartender never heard of him working in advertising. Before he was a newspaper man, he ran a tavern upstate somewhere with his wife. Now, that's all we've got. So what should Ed do? Uh, come back to the office? No, no, no. Our man was in there two days ago. He might turn up any minute. No, have Ed work on the bartender. Psychoanalyze him for more details. Have a few drinks with him. This cook's a human blotter, and he's got some screwy game. Yeah, well, Ed can get drunk with him, but not too drunk. And tell him to try some of the other customers. What's the address and phone number there? I felt I'd pulled it off pretty well. I'd keep things on ice for a while. Eccentric, huh? Moron. Lush. <laughs> I never saw that when I looked in the mirror. I touched my shirt. It was soaked with nervous sweat. I was getting home later and leaving earlier. My wife, concerned with being cook, nurse, and handholder, our daughter had tonsillitis, hadn't seemed to notice that the painting was no longer in the dining room. I hoped she'd forgotten it. I had it stashed in the downstairs closet behind all our raincoats. George, you're not leaving without your breakfast. Yeah, I have to, hon. I'll call you. Darling, I don't like the way you look at all. They're, they're working you too hard. Try to get home earlier, dear. The worry about how close I was to losing my family if the truth came out rode into town with me. 
The Janeth building, covering half a block, looked into space with 500 light-reflecting, sightless eyes. As of my own free will, I delivered myself once more into its stone intestines. Roy wanted me in his office, which had taken on the look of command headquarters for World War III. A big blackboard covered half a wall. Cross-reference charts were propped up on desks, tables. I didn't see Leon Temple right away. He was behind a six-foot chart. What do you think of it? You're doing a thorough job, Roy. <laughs> I've got our Mr. X charted ten ways from Sunday, all cross-indexed. Each chart covers a different area. Where he was known to be, suppositions, aliases, appearance. Uh, brown hair, clean cut, average height and build. That description could fit anybody. <laughs> Fits me. We'll refine the description, don't worry. Reports have begun coming in. See, under uh, background, he may or may not be in advertising. He used to be a newspaper man. Once operated an upstate tavern resort with his wife. Now, that's just a matter of checking every tavern license back as far as necessary. Well, that's a start, Roy. Start? More than that. Leon just worked up a report on the Van Barth. I was just going to put it up on the board. Read it to him, Leon. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> it was established that the man in question, whom we know as George Chester, was in the Van Barth Lounge on Saturday night last, sometime between 9.30 and 10. He was carrying an unframed oil painting, which he did not check, and was overheard talking to his female companion about what the painting should be named. The woman with him was one Pauline Dellis. Dellis? Are you sure of that? No doubt about it, George. Oh, sure, sure. Leon checked the waiter, bartender, checkroom girl, all three. Identified her from pictures published in the paper. Now, uh, doesn't this alter the whole character of the assignment? Now, did the police know Dulles was in there Saturday nights? Of course. Everybody in the place reported it once they saw the papers. I'm asking Leon. Oh, yes, yes, they know. And do the police know that we're looking for the man who was with her? Well, I didn't give them any information. I followed your exact instructions. Ah, so that's it, huh? just that they were there. Oh, no, no, no. There's evidence. Um, when they left the cocktail lounge of the Van Barth, our subject left something behind. What? Uh, what, what did he leave? Subject's handkerchief. I've got it here in the envelope. The lady spilled her drink. I see that. I wouldn't touch it, George. We may be able to raise a fingerprint. From a handkerchief? Oh, I doubt that. Anyway, if they can, I imagine it already has plenty. The waiters, the cashiers, yours. One more set won't matter. Well, even without fingerprints, it can probably be traced. There's, uh, there's a laundry mark on it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll uh, send it to the lab, Roy. You go on with what you're doing. At least I'd publicly handled the handkerchief. Back in my office, I closed the door of my desk on it. Just as Don Klausmeyer came in. I've got some interesting information, George. Any luck with the painting? Yeah, real luck. You know, I uh, found the artist. No? Oh? She lives in a loft, paradise for rats and termites. Got four kids, never was married. <laughs> the first of the women's livers. Ah, that's all very interesting. Mm. What's it got to do with our man? Just this. She's the customer who bid unsuccessfully for her own picture that night. A friend saw a canvas in the shop window and told her. She tried to buy it back, but she'd been broke for years and couldn't match our guy's bid. But she did give a detailed description of him. You know, the artist's eye and all that. Let's have it. Yeah, I got the old girl on tape and had it transcribed. Here, let me read it to you. 
I quote Patterson. The bum that outbid me for my own paintings was a smug, self-satisfied creep just like 10 million other rubber stamp sub-executives. Brown hair, line of gray at the temple, brown eyes, high cheekbones, symmetrical lean features, face looks like he'd scrubbed and shaved it five times a day. Has one of those $10 hairstylings just over the edge of the ear and curling at the nape of the neck. More establishment than hippie. He's 37, 38, weighs between 160 and 165, 5 feet, 10 and a half. Gray tweed suit, wide red and black necktie striped with white, wears a wide gold wedding band. A good deal of an exhibitionist imagines he's Omar Sharif, and that's what he plays at being. The woman with him was beautiful, if you like lesbians in standard Park Avenue models. He knows pictures, especially the works of L. Patterson, which he doubtless collects, but only for their snob appeal. Otherwise, he's a totally obnoxious man. Unquote. Well, she uh, didn't miss much, huh? May or may not be a good description. Her opinion, a little biased. You know, George, when I was poking around that studio loft she lives in, looking at acres of her pictures, they all had kind of the same feel. And it reminded me of something I've seen somewhere else quite recently. I was staring straight over his head at Louise Patterson's study in fury on the wall behind him. The only trouble is, <laughs> I can't remember what it is or where I saw it. Well, it'll come back to you. Don't worry about it. I'll see you tomorrow. I took him by the arm and ushered him out so he wouldn't have a chance to turn and look at the painting on the wall. I thought of its mate, the temptation of Judas in the downstairs closet at home behind our raincoats. It could be discovered and easily if they ever caught up with me. If anyone ever got that far, I was finished anyway. Dennis and Steve Hagen would take care of that. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here. To this week's continuing study in suspense, Desperate Witness, I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Desperate Witness was adapted from Kenneth Deering's The Big Clock by Gwen Bagney and Paul Dupont. Richard Crenna is Drive. Keenan Wynn is Janet. And Julie Adams is Georgette. Featured in the cast are Larry Thor as Roy, Paul Dubov as Leon, Jack Manning as Don, and Richard Deacon as Matheson. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is the executive producer, and Karen Lee Cohn, associate producer. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferenzi and Teicher, and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow, and once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour.
Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Kenneth Fearing's study of a deadly obsession. Desperate witness. Starring Richard Cranston. Keenan Wynn. And Julie Adams. Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. George Stroud, on orders from on high, is leading a manhunt for someone he knows to be a witness before the fact to murder. It's only a matter of time. And time cannot be bought. Not like the painting hanging in the office or the one for which he paid $50 to a junk dealer the night of the murder. For George Stroud, time is running short. In a moment, part four of Desperate Witness, right after this word. I call Steve Hagen. I would have preferred to see his face when I told him our search led us to a dead woman. But his secretary had said he wasn't available. So I settled for just hearing his reaction. Yes, George? Steve, the woman with our man that night was Pauline Dulles. Steve, are you there? You better come upstairs, George. They were both there when I walked across those carpeted acres. Steve Hagen seated at his desk, Janice standing behind him. If I thought my face reflected tension, Janice was controlled hysteria. He nodded to me, then he turned and he looked out the window. George, I've imparted your information to Mr. Janice. He's naturally disturbed. But he agrees with me that there's absolutely no significance in the fact that Pauline Dellis was the man's companion that night. What we want... What we have to have is the name and whereabouts of the man himself. I'm That's sorry. all we're after. I can't buy that there's no connection. Well, you have our assurance, Mr. Janice and mine. You see, we've had reason to believe that Pauline knew this go-between, so it's not unnatural that she would have been out with him. Perhaps we should have told you. Yeah, perhaps you should have. Listen, Pauline Delos is a blind alley. Her murder is one story. This is different, unrelated. Now, let's look at some of these other leads a little more closely. We're still checking the list of upstate liquor licenses suspended or not renewed with the board, aren't we? Yeah, that's a tall order. There are hundreds. The list is being fed straight to me. If I get anything, he'll know immediately. You've seen the story Newsways ran about this Patterson move? 
It's too early for results. Our spread is going to put that woman on the map. Someone is certain to recognize that Judas painting from our description. Our evaluation of it is priceless, is sure to locate it. It's my hunch that that picture alone will nail our man to the wall. Those bars, uh, art galleries, and so on. They're all being covered, Mr. Jeff. Exactly. And why hasn't our man shown by now? No one suddenly abandons his habitual routine of life, not without good reason. Why? He may be the one who murdered Dulles. In that case, he's not making himself conspicuous. Though he knows he's in fast company, he knows the score, and he's gone to ground. Right where he is, so the same thing won't happen to him. You mean uh, he may believe himself to be in danger? He knows somebody's playing for keeps. Why shouldn't he be worried? Maybe he saw the killer. Can identify him. He's afraid to come forward, knowing he's in for the same. Hmm. He's keeping undercover, staying away from all the places he always went before. Uh... How many people in the organization, Stroud, know about this particular job? Uh, what do you mean? Right here, Janet Enterprises. How many? I'd guess. Well, with 53 people now working on this assignment, I'd say everyone knows about it. The entire 2,000. Why? And nothing. For a second, I thought I had something. All right. I guess that reports on everything. And it's still nothing. You think I missed a bet somewhere? Just bear down on it. That's all. I shall. And now that we've decided the murder and our particular guy belong together, there are a lot more lines we can follow. What lines? Well, for one thing, Mr. Janeth, I'll have some men cover all cab stands in the neighborhood of Pauline Dulles' apartment. Cab stands? Why? On the night of her death, only a few minutes after it, in fact, somebody took a cab away from that vicinity and couldn't help being rather noticeable. The driver will remember. I, I, I don't follow that. It's quite simple. Our subject took Pauline to Gill's, then to a number of antique shops, then to the Van Barth. Why wouldn't he take her home? Of course he did. Our timing concurs with the police's. He took her home, then he had to leave. The first and most obvious line to follow is that he left in a taxi. Perhaps he had his own car. Huh? Perhaps he did. He may have walked, taken a bus. Right. Maybe he did none of these things. But it's my hunch we'll discover he did take a cab. We'll locate the driver, we'll find out where he drove him, and that'll close the whole assignment. The stricken look on Janice's face that came and went screamed his guilt, reassured me that I was right. Janice had taken a cab that night, and it was my only hope of nailing him with the murder. Later that day, Janice went home under doctor's care. The word was he had a strep throat. My bet was that he had a chill brought on by seeing himself with a number on his chest. But I had a chill, too. Brought on by the sure knowledge that if they'd been out to get me before, they'd stop at nothing to cut me down now. I took three good recent photographs of Earl Janeth out of the morgue. But I didn't leave the office, even when five o'clock rolled around. I stayed, pretending to be bogged down, correlating all the information that had been given to me. By the time I left the office, I really needed a drink. The idea of going into a bar now made me very nervous. I got to the second cab stand, which I figured to be the most likely, about the same hour that Janeth would have taken the cab that Saturday night. 
I showed Janice pictures to the only cabbie waiting at the stand. He didn't want to know who I was or why I was asking. No, 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 wait, let me see that other picture. No, I'm, I'm sure I never hacked this guy, but maybe my partner, we own a cab together, he works Saturday nights, he could have drove him, you know. I gave him three things. A picture of Janeth, a $20 bill, and the phone number of the office with instructions to talk only to me. The proposition was backed up by another 20 in the offing if he got me the right information. I felt more relaxed for the first time in days when I got home. My family was asleep. I had a drink, and I took the temptation of Judas painting out of the downstairs closet. My intent was to destroy it. I couldn't bring myself to do it. It was a work of art, and to destroy a work of art is murder of another kind. So I carried it into the cellar, and I stashed it face to the wall behind the furnace. The horn of the school bus and a small female cyclone swept through the lower rooms of the house, gathering a school bag, crayons, picture book, lunchbox, and a hastily scribbled note from her mother explaining her tonsillitis. Her mother and I stood there in the warm sunlight for a moment. The picture of an ordinary, normal, untroubled family. I waved the bus off until I could no longer see it. I kept waving. I could feel my face locking into deep lines that could hold rainwater. Are you all right, George? No, it's a headache, that's all. Just a... Just a headache. George, something is bothering you. I can feel it. Will you get off my back? Oh, I'm sorry, honey. I'm sorry. It's just a... It's a lousy mood. You know how it is. It's deadline week. That's okay. You know, um, you you forgot to bring home a Newsways last night. Slip my mind. I'll bring one home tonight without fail. And fashion, if you like. Never mind the Newsways. I bought one yesterday. Oh? You know there's an article in it about this Louise Patterson. Yeah, I, uh, I glanced at it. Fabulous. Just what you've been saying for years. Here. Listen. With all the force of a major explosion, by grace of a new talent suddenly shooting meteor-like across the otherwise turgid skies of the contemporary art world... Overwritten. <laughs> there's more. Louise Patterson may view her models through a microscope, but the brush she wields is gargantuan. Isn't that grand? Grand. Well, they're recognizing a talent. Don't be so critical just because they use different words than you would. At least they admit she's a great painter. Well, for heaven's sake, George, don't pretend you aren't pleased. You must have seven or eight Pattersons. Now they're all valuable. Well, I have to run. I'll drive in. Or uh, do you need the car? Wait, wait, wait. I want you to hear the rest of this. This week, interest in the art world centered on the whereabouts of one of Patterson's lost masterpieces, her famed Judas, admittedly the most highly prized canvas, etc., etc. Oh, this is the part. Depicting two huge hands extending a coin, a consummate study in flaming yellow, red, and tawny brown, this composition was widely known some years ago, then it quietly dropped from view, and so on. Well? Neat, but not gaudy. They make it sound like a rainbow at midnight. That's not what I'm driving at. Would you know anything about that picture? Well, why should I? Didn't I see an unframed painting you brought home over a week ago? The the night Georgia came down with tonsillitis, didn't I? Oh, that, yeah. Yeah, Well, honey, that that wasn't an original. That was only a copy. Well, what became of it? It was here in the dining room. I searched everywhere. I took it to the office. 
Where do you think those plumbers who call themselves writers got such an accurate description of the original? <laughs> you know, Barsway, I'll have to step on it. Call you this afternoon. Mafferson met me coming into the building. We rode up together. Fortunately, the elevator was empty except for the two of us. But Mafferson didn't want to talk about what he'd learned at police headquarters. He had another worry. His job. You think we'll all be fired? Who gave you that idea? Well, I ran into this fellow at breakfast. I always stop off at Schraff's in the morning. Uh, Fred Stiekel's his name. Managing editor of Jeanette Donahue. I never did like that man, and he's even more obnoxious now that he's in a position of power. He was almost as insulting as the night when I tried to call you. A week ago Saturday, the night of the murder, as it turns out. I couldn't reach you, so I called Steve Hagen. Steichel says our magazines are going to fall. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Just, what time did you call, Steve? 10.30, hmm. 10.45. <laughs> Strange, isn't it? Police records say that's about the time she was killed. And you talked to Steve Hagen? He was home? Yes, at his apartment. Talked to Janice, too. Janice? Yeah. What's strange about that? He'd been there all evening, came direct from the airport. They were having a business meeting and told me not to worry about my job. I wanted to yell. Mafferson backing Janice Alibi. Now I had to find that cab driver. My mind was racing with the need. We were in my office, but I couldn't remember reaching it. Mafferson was dutifully giving me his police report, and I wasn't listening. Until I heard the word... Albany. What? I said, the police know Dallas was out of town from last Friday until late Saturday. They found out where she was from a book of matches in her apartment. Came from a nightclub in Albany that doesn't circulate its matches. And in the course of a routine checkup with the Albany hotels, they found out, found out where she'd stayed and what name she'd used. Oh, really? Incidentally... The police know all about this job you've been doing here, and they're convinced the man you're looking for and the man with Dallas last weekend in Albany is one and the same. Does that help or hinder our story? Go on, go on. Oh, that's about all. They're sending a man up there this afternoon or tomorrow morning with a lot of photographs to check out with the nightclub, the hotel, and elsewhere. I told you they had the Dallas woman's address book, didn't I? Mm. They've been rounding up pictures of every man she knew, and most likely the Albany guy is one of them. Do you follow me? Yeah, yeah, I follow you. They know from the general description they got over the phone from the hotel personnel that the man most definitely was not Janeth. At the hotel, they were registered as Mr. and Mrs. Andrew Phelps Guillaume. Oh, by the way, your name was in her address book. Did you know that? My, my wife and I met her at a couple of parties. Now, if, if I may digress from these facts to a more philosophical evaluation... You're doing a good job, Emery. Don't evaluate. Just keep compiling facts. Oh, by the way, is the department looking for a photograph of me? Oh, they already have one. Off your driver's license application. The man they're sending upstate has quite a collection. Fifty or sixty photographs. I see. Now, I can go to Albany with him if you like. You know, expedite things. No, no, and... no, no, I mean, no. I want you to start working up that story. I could feel the big clock's hands spinning, hurling me faster and faster. Any minute now, it would tell me my time was up. investigation, the organizations and the police were drawing steadily together like pincers. 
I could feel them closing. I told myself it was just a vast machine and the machine was blind. But I hadn't fully realized its crushing weight and power. The big clock. It measures people in the way it measures money and the growth of trees and the lifespan and the morals of mosquitoes. When the hour strikes, that is indeed the hour, the day, the correct time. When it says a man is right, he is right. And when it finds him wrong, he is through with no appeal. The big clock is as deaf as it is blind. And as merciless. I return to my desk from a lunch I could not remember having tasted. Oh, Mr. Stroud. Here's that list of non-renewed licenses from out-of-town taverns you asked for. It's from ten years back. Oh, thanks, Lucille. I haven't had a chance to go through and alphabetize them yet if you want to leave them with me. No, later, thanks. One of them would have my name on it. And my wife's. I carried them to my desk, figuring I'd feed them to the paper shredder. But Roy's door into my office was open. He was standing in it. For the moment, I consigned the file folder to my bottom drawer. Been uh, meaning to ask you, George, did you send that handkerchief to the lab to check possible fingerprints and uh, have the laundry mark run down? No, I'm sorry, Roy. I, I forgot. You give it to me, will you? I'll do it right away. Yeah, sure. I've got it right here on my desk. Oh, and uh, Hagen called. I want you to come right up. These conferences with Hagen had daily become longer, more frequent, more bitter. It was cold comfort to have a clear understanding of the abyss that Hagen and Janeth, particularly Janeth, saw yawning before them. I wasn't thinking about Janeth, but about myself when I opened Hagen's door. found myself staring at a photographic blow-up of the painting I'd hidden in my cellar at home. We're going to run it on the cover of Newsways next issue with a follow-up story on the artist. But uh, well, the cover, is, is she that significant? She's not. We have our own reasons for running the story. The first article on the artist generated a lot of reader interest. Now we run this lead. Priceless painting disappears. That'll pull our man out of the woodwork. Somebody will turn him in. Someone who knows he has the picture. <laughs> Hagen, who hadn't touched anything as plebeian as layout in the 15 years he'd risen to the top of Janus' empire, was meticulously laying out the copy on his desk. I stared over his shoulder at a four-by-six photo displaying one wall of a Louise Patterson exhibition nine years back in the Miller Gallery. In the middle, surrounded by four other paintings, was the two hands of the Temptation of Judas. But it was another painting that grabbed my throat and squeezed the air out of me. Two faces, two profiles facing one another in confrontation called Study in Fury. This painting at that very moment was hanging as it had for two years on the wall of my office just six floors below. By the time Newsways went to press, anyone who'd wandered in and out of my office since this insanity began was sure to make the connection. If I lasted until Newsways went to press... George, what the devil's wrong? This thing has drifted more than a week. Why haven't we found our man? I just shook my head and walked out. By the time I got back to my office, they were all there. Roy, Leon Temple, Phil Best, a couple of other leg men. It was apparent the second I stepped into the room that there'd been a break. George, we've got him. Where? Where is he? Right here. Here? Go on, tell him, Leon. Our man came into this building just a little while ago, right after lunch. Well, I don't... I just... I don't understand. 
Why would he come in here? Who is he? We don't know yet, but we've got him. Leon slipped some cash to the staff of the Van Barth, let them know there'd be more. Incidentally, I need my expense account. Would you skip the non-essentials, please? But what Leon's trying to tell you, George, is that the staff of the Van Barth have all been scouting around this district in their free hours. After all, the Van Barth's only three blocks from here. And one of their porters picked up our guy and followed him right into this building. I couldn't get over Roy's eyes. Calm, unflappable Roy... And his eyes blazed with evangelical zeal. All of them, all the men in that room, lusting for blood like hunters who treat an animal. And I was the animal. I was saying things like, good boy, Leon, that's using your head, Roy. And all the while I wondered if my reflexes had stopped working. I uncrossed my knees with the pieces of me fall off one by one like the rusted, useless wheels and cogs of a worthless machine that has outlived its purpose. In about two minutes, we'll have every door and exit covered. You're certain that he's the man we're looking for? The porter's positive. He saw him crossing the street, followed him a block, almost lost him at the light, but ran and caught up just as our Mr. X entered this building. Unfortunately, he got to the elevator before the Van Barth guy could alert us. Oh, I see. In addition to the porter, a night bartender from the Van Barth, waitress and gills, and the art dealer have all arrived. Well, I... nothing to do now but wait, huh? If he doesn't come out during the afternoon, we're sure to pick him up at 5.30 when the building empties. It'll be jammed. We'll have to cover every inch of the main floor. He's in the bag. We can't miss. Agree, George? In the bag. And I'll wait it out right along with him. Stay here till we get him. If necessary, I'll sleep here all night. I'm not going to leave this office till we've got this all sewed up. Roy would know that if a man came into a building and didn't go out, he must logically still be inside. And this inescapable conclusion must eventually be followed by one, and only one, logical course of action. Sooner or later, my staff must go through the building, floor by floor, office by office, looking for the only man in it who never went home. That man would be me. this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, Desperate Witness. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Desperate Witness was adapted from Kenneth Fearing's The Big Clock by Glenn Bagney and Paul Dupin. Richard Crenna is Stroud. Keenan Wynn is Janice. And Julie Adams is Georgette. Featured in the cast are Tom Troop as Hagen, Richard Deacon as Matheson, Larry Thor as Roy, and Paul Dubov as Leon. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is the executive producer, and Karen Lee Cohn, associate producer. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferenti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow, and once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour.
Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Kenneth Fearing's study of a deadly obsession. Desperate witness. Starring Richard Kramer. Keenan Wynn. Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. George Stroud, a man in the middle, trapped by his own knowledge of events and the unrelenting hands of time. He is a prisoner on the 26th floor pursued from below by those who would identify him, leaving his only avenue of escape, the floors above, where waits the man he knows to be the actual murderer. For George Stroud, time is running out. In a moment, the conclusion of Desperate Witness. But first, this word. Sometime very early, I woke on the couch that I'd moved into my office, put on my shoes and necktie, the only clothing I'd removed, and in a mental cloud, I went to my desk. A few minutes past eight. The day was the day. I still didn't know how I'd meet it, but I knew it was the day. The police would finish the checkup in Albany, Roy would follow up with a laundry mark on the handkerchief, and somebody would think of combing the building. Oh, boy. Oh, I, I, there are a lot of unexpected... Shortly before nine, the rest of the staff began to assemble. Leon Temple, Mafferson, Eddie, Roy. Why don't you go home, George? There's nothing you can do here now, is there? No, I'm staying. You ought to be in at the finish, right? Right. How's everything downstairs, Leon? I was a drum. Phil Best just spelled Mike. We got the whole night side of the Van Barth down there and some more special cops. You know, I... I don't understand it. What don't you understand, Emery? Why this guy hasn't come out. He's here, but but where is he? Well, maybe he left before we threw a line around the place. Oh, not a chance. Well, he may have simply walked in one door and out the other. Perhaps he knew he was being followed. Oh, no, no, no. I'm the one who had the first contact. I know. That porter followed him right to the elevator. He took an express. He could be anywhere above the 18th floor. For all we know, he's somewhere up here in our own organization. But what can we do about it? He'll show. I thought time was of the essence. It is. Oh, what is it, Roy? What's the matter? That painting. The one the man bought? No. The one on the wall there. Oh, oh that one. 
What about it? Well, just that... Well, we, we've all been in and out of here every day for a week. I don't think any of us recognized it's the same style as the Judas. We can't all be art critics. All right, come on. It's time to spell the guys downstairs. Wait, George, it occurs to me that if he doesn't show... If he doesn't show, what? Well, we could take those eyewitnesses with the building police, of course, and some of our own men and go through the whole place from top to bottom, cover every office. It'd take a couple of hours, but we'd know. It sounds like a good idea, Roy. Yeah. But let's, uh... Let's wait on it, shall we, until we've had a chance to clear it with Hagen. After all, this is his baby. I don't want to take the play away from him, do we? Well, all right, we'll, we'll wait a while then. The pieces of the puzzle were falling into place. All but the one that had my face. I knew that every obstacle I threw in front of my staff only bought me minutes, an hour or two at the most. Everyone was on my back. Don Klausmeyer called four times. Louise Patterson was threatening to sue the magazine for libel. Don was trying to talk some sense into her. Haven't you caught your murderer yet? Well, uh, <clears throat> we aren't looking for any murderer, Miss Patterson, I've told you. I know what you've told me. Think I got a memory like a sieve? We've located the man who bought your picture, Miss Patterson. We believe we know where he is, and he'll be found at any moment. And we wish you'd come to the office so you can identify him. Of course, we'll pay you for your time and trouble. We'll give you $100 if you'll help us. So you found your murderer, huh? And, well, I want to impress upon you, we're not looking for a murderer, Miss Patterson. I assure you of that. We want this man in some altogether different connection. Hogwash. Uh, I beg your pardon? Look, fool your readers. Don't try to fool Louise Patterson. A hundred bucks? I don't take time off my work to identify any murderer for less than two fifty. Well, I... I'm sorry I'm not authorized to go that high. Well, you better get authorized, Sonny, or I don't go to the trouble of combing my hair. The witnesses downstairs were getting restless. Several of my men called up about how long they'd have to wait. I still hadn't called Hagen. I expected Roy to walk in and ask why any second. Instead, it was Don Klausenmeyer. He didn't have to tell me who was with him. I could hear her in my outer office through the door. Offering a hundred bucks. Look at the money they spend around here for furniture. I've got Patterson outside. Now, what's she doing up here, Don? The witnesses are all supposed to be in the lobby, covering the elevators, the stairways, the exits. Oh, she, she's willing to help identify her man, but she wants a chair with a footstool, an ashtray, a pot of coffee, and $250. 300 uh, <clears throat> George, this is Miss Patterson, the artist. I stood up. My hand had gone to stone, but still I went through the motions, extended it. She didn't see my hand. She saw nothing in the room except her painting, Study in Fury, on my wall. My Study in Fury? Oh, wow. Look how it's placed there on the wall. And perfect light. And that frame's got real taste. Well, I uh, admire all of your paintings, Miss Patterson. Well... It's refreshing to find someone in this cheapskate organization who appreciates the finer... Her eyes turned straight on me. She knew who I was. Louise Patterson hesitated for no more than a heartbeat. Mine. There was no question that she'd recognize me, none whatsoever. I waited the eternal moment for her to say, This is the one. This is the man you're looking for that beat me out of my own painting for 50 bucks. Hang him. 
And while I waited for the trap to be sprung, Clausmeyer added to my anguish. Hey, that's where I saw the painting that reminded me of her other one. Right here on your wall. I knew I'd seen it somewhere. <laughs> I think I've looked at it every day and not been aware of it. Why didn't you tell us you had a Patterson, George? Huh? Why? This painting isn't missing. I assumed you all knew I had it. It's been hanging there for over two years. Yeah, but why didn't you tell us that she had painted it? <laughs> what was there to tell? I liked it. I bought it. It's been there ever since. Would you care for a drink, Miss Patterson? Anything. A double anything. Surely. It's very kind of you to help us. I imagine Don explained what we're doing. You're looking for a murderer. No, we're looking for a man. Yes, I know. I know everything. Mr. Stroud, I really do. I don't doubt it. I'm sure you do, Mrs. Patterson. And to think you have my study in fury. <laughs> I live with it every day of my life. I love it. You do? You really do? Completely. I like all of your work. I have four or five hanging at home. I'm, as you might say, a kind of a one-man Louise Patterson fan club. Well, where the hell's my study in fundamentals? The one your lousy magazine calls Judas. I, I told her we'd try to get it back for her, George. You promised me. I didn't say we had it, Miss Patterson. I meant that if we found the man, we'd automatically find a picture. Oh, yes, that does make sense. Doesn't it, Mr. Stroud? Or do you think, as I do, Mr. Stroud, that the man, this murderer, to keep from being discovered, has probably already destroyed the painting? No, Miss Patterson, I don't think so. I have reason to believe your painting is quite safe. Unless, of course, the man should get nervous. But I fully believe it'll be recovered, provided everything else goes off all right. <laughs> do you fully understand? Well, I'll tell you one thing, Mr. Stroud. It had damn well better be safe since your magazine has said its value at priceless. Oh, we're very careful about things like that, Miss Patterson. <laughs> Here, let me uh, refresh your drink. Rye this time. You know, you hung that painting beautifully. You have a very good eye. Yeah, I could do no less for such a distinctive work of art. Of course you couldn't. Where do you want me to play watchdog, Klaus Meyer? She belted her second double and walked out with him. It was a reprieve, and I'd won it by sheer blackmail. Artists are curious. The slim thread that I'd framed her painting well and that I was a collector, even in a minor way, kept her quiet. I knew why she hadn't identified me. The fact I'd not destroyed her painting, and my threat that I still would if she opened her mouth. <laughs> I shuddered to think how close I'd come to getting rid of that canvas. But she could still make trouble. She was erratic enough. My relief was no more than a spasm in time, because... Roy was back, and this time there was no more stall. George, I'm going to lose my witnesses downstairs unless we get some action. Did you clear it with Hagen? Oh, I'm sorry, Roy. I, I forgot. Look, you're in charge. You don't need Hagen. All right. All right, Roy. Get started. But I want to be kept informed of every move. Let me know what floor you start on, which direction you're working on, and where you're going. Okay. And remember, you've got to get everyone's permission before you go in. Don't get anyone jumpy or scared. You'll be sued all over the place. Right. Now, just exactly how are you going to work it? Well, 
The plan is to start on the 18th floor, get security cops to guard elevators and stairs while I go through every office with witnesses. Mm, keep me informed. And I think the witnesses should be encouraged. Yeah. Pay them. Here, I'll give you a voucher. Good hunting. What a price. I wonder if any other man on earth has ever watched his whole life go to bits and pieces, carrying with it the lives of those close to him without a, a silent protest. The man who really accepts his fate, who really bows without a quiver to the big game he's made and lost, that's the lie. <laughs> it's a myth. There is no such man, never has been, never will be. I could have cried out to Roy, stop the comedy, here I am, take me. But I didn't. I would fight for survival to the last essence of hope in me. Stroud. Roy here. We're on the 18th floor now. All exits closed, all down elevators being stopped for inspection. There's just one way to go. Up. There were bulletins from floors 19, 20, 21. Five floors till they would get to me. As the distance narrowed, the time shortened. I could only reach out to one person. My wife. Hello? Georgette? <laughs> Who were you expecting? <laughs> oh, why are we running? Oh, I, I was outside. You know, a gopher ate the roots of our baby elm tree. It just fell over. I'm sorry, hon. I'll get you another one, huh? Oh, I'm so sorry. George, it's not that important. You sound so worried. It's just a gopher in a tree. I am. Yes. George, what's wrong? Did you call me because something's wrong? No. No, no, sweetheart. No, I just I wanted to... I just want to talk for a minute, that's all. Well, let's talk. I love you. After I hung up, I sat there. Where would I go now? What would I fight with? I had to make one last desperate effort to put it all together. To survive... I'd stayed longer on the phone with my wife than I thought. The phone hadn't been in its cradle more than ten seconds when there was another bulletin from Roy. We're starting the 22nd floor now, George. That's fine, thanks. The choice was simple. It was Janet or me. I got up out of my chair and I headed to the elevator with a half-formed idea that there might be some safety in the very heart of the enemy's territory. Steve Hagen's or Janet's offices on the 32nd floor. Inside the elevator, I punched the button... I was alone. The steel box, a momentary haven. I leaned against the wall and I closed my eyes and I tried to shut it all out. I heard the doors open, stepped out, and I started toward the executive offices. But these weren't the executive offices. This was the accounting floor. The 22nd floor. 
Without realizing it, I'd punched the wrong button and I'd gone down. I could hear their voices coming up the stairwell. I raced back to the elevator and I punched the up button. There's someone getting in the elevator. I held my finger on the button, but the elevator didn't move. I could hear them through the door. He went in here. I saw him. Did you recognize him? No, I didn't. After an interminable moment, I was going up. Even though no one had recognized me, I got off at the 31st floor, I punched the elevator down, and I walked up to the 32nd. I had to sit in Hagen's outer office. Janeth was inside, but the secretary refused to announce me. Big conference going on. I waited, pacing all the time up and back in the reception room, wondering what floor the pack had reached by now. I was looking out the window when I heard a door open. For a moment, I thought they'd reached here. But it was Steve Hagen. George, I've been trying to reach you. Come on in. In Hagen's office, besides Hagen, the office held Earl Janeth, several big stockholders, editors, lawyers for both sides, and Fred Steichel, managing editor of Jeanette Donahue. All of them looked slightly embarrassed, except Steichel, who seemed apologetic. And Janeth, who radiated more than his customary assurance came forward and he heartily shook my hand. And I saw that the self-confidence was instead nervous tension mounting to near hysteria. George, I'm very glad to see you. Uh, you can frame what I'm about to say on paper and issue a bulletin to the entire staff. I'm terribly sorry I couldn't have had the pleasure of speaking to each and every one of them personally. I, uh... I have consented to step aside and prevent a merger with the firm of Jenna Dunahue. The entire staff stays on. I hope they'll all give Mr. Steichel the same loyalty they gave to me and uh, to Steve. I... Everybody shook hands. It was all very polite. And they left, leaving Hagen, Janeth, and myself. They just stood and looked at each other in shock. It was as though they'd forgotten I was there. The door opened before I could get to it. It was Roy. Behind him were a porter from Gill's and a waiter from the Van Barth. We've drawn a blank so far, George. Only thing left of these offices. I think we should go through them thoroughly. Now drop it, Roy. The assignment's killed. You mean uh, send them all away? That's right, send them all away. The conspiracy problem's resolved. Janeth Enterprises is under new management. But, but, but what about the witnesses? You, you, can't, you can't just take their time like this. There's 20 bucks extra. I'll sign the vouchers later. Look. Well, that's what Mr. Hagen wants. That's what he wants. Hello? Yes, who's there? For you, Stroud. No? Mr. Stroud, you're a tough man to find. Who is this? The cabbie on 58th Street, remember? You can send me the other 20, I found your man. My partner picked up the guy you were looking for Saturday night around 10.30. He identified him from the picture you gave me. When are you coming by, huh? I'll be there tomorrow morning. Thanks. During my conversation on the phone... Janeth, as though sleepwalking, had gone into his own office. I started toward it. Don't go in there, Stroud. Let him alone. 
All right, Steve. Then you tell him. There's a certain cabbie on 58th Street who identified Janeth as the fare he took from there to your address just minutes after Pauline Dulles was murdered. There's no alibi. Janeth never got the message. Just how long it took him to fall 32 floors, I don't know. But it was all over for Earl Janeth. The crowd was still milling around when I came out of the building for the first time in two days. The news flash was already on the radio as I walked into the nearest bar. Belted a couple of drinks. Louise Patterson was in there. Well, I'll buy you a drink after that circus in the street. Then I want my painting back. You mean the Judas? You know what I mean. I mean my study in fundamentals. Where is it? What have you done with it? Nothing. Nothing. It's home. Why would I have destroyed it? Because it proves you killed Pauline Dellis? I didn't kill her. Then why were we looking for you? To find the painting. Remember, it's priceless. Double talk. You're worse than that warm Klausmeyer. I want my painting back. That was the deal. No go. No, I bought it. It's mine. I won't give it up. But you only paid 50 bucks for it. You know, I learned a lot. That painting gave me an education. I'll never give it up. I'll tell you what I'll do, though. I'll give you the one in my office, the study in Fury, and one of the others I have at home in trade. Three others. <laughs> Two. I'll drink to that. I can't get over it. Your boss jumps from the window because his business collapsed. Everyone has his own reason. I don't understand that. <laughs> my business comes apart every time I finish a painting. You're luckier than he was. Well, thanks for the drink. Have another? No. No, thanks. I'm going home. Where every good married man should go. Do you think they'll ever find who killed that woman? Probably. It won't matter now. I stepped outside. I took a long, deep breath, and I headed for my car. The big, silent, invisible clock was moving along as usual. Only this time it was off my back. At least for a little while. That concludes this week's production of The Zero Hour. Kenneth Fearing's Desperate Witness. Next week we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days. At the same time, Monday through Friday... So on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to the Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Desperate Witness was adapted from Kenneth Thierry's The Big Clock by Gwen Bagney and Paul Duvall. Richard Crenna was Stroud. Keenan Wynn was Janet. And Julie Adams was Georgette. Featured in the cast were Tom Troop as Hagen, Larry Thor as Roy, Paul Duvall as Leon, Richard Deacon as Mafferson, Jane Dulo as Patterson, and Jack Manning as Don. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. 
Jack Myers is the executive producer, and Karen Lee Cohn, associate producer. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferenti and Teicher. It is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. You, Dr. Speaker. Tune in Monday, and once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. <laughs>